Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20 and I would like to read them first. It reads this way. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the way of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and to trust that you are who you have said you are. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you dream of having superpowers? Probably most of us, right, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, how many of you, when you watch something like Heroes or Star Wars, long for some of the powers that are exhibited on those shows? I know that sometimes when I drive, I, I try to do this with the slow drivers in front of me. So I just want to get them out of the way. They're like, you know that? And I found myself... This weekend at the elders' retreat, as we were eating dinner at Chili's, I was beginning to miss Siler. Do you know who Siler is from Heroes? And that's kind of weird because he's a sort of split personality. I don't know if he's good or he's bad, but I, I just kind of miss that sense of, of, of seeing power exhibited and how neat uh, it could be, and then longing for something like that myself in my own heart. Do you ever think about Christianity in a way like that with superpowers, where You desire a more muscular or a more powerful Christianity that goes just beyond the words and the nice things that we do because we're supposed to do those nice things, but where you can actually get to a place where you see the actual power of God do something. 
like, like I've shared with you before, how sometimes I long to just go to a wake or a funeral and walk up to the casket and just say, in the name of Jesus, get up and just have that person pop up and how cool that would be. And uh, how I'll never do it because I'm so chicken, but it's what my desire would be to see things like that to actually happen in our midst. Well, today we're going to look at that just a little bit and how that fits into the life of Paul and his ministry at, at Ephesus and how that might actually bear itself out among ourselves as we follow Jesus today. Uh, here's the background. As you've known as you're reading through this Acts part that we're looking at, that Paul is in Ephesus. And the important thing to kind of know about Ephesus as we go through this passage is that Ephesus was a top city, a top-notch city, number four, or among the top four, they say, in the Roman Empire. But it had a reputation. And it had a reputation for its magic. And I don't mean like the Disneyland kind of magic or the kind of fool you sort of magic, but the powerful uh, demonic type magic that was really frightening and used evil powers for evil purposes, for making money, that kind of stuff. In a sense, you could say uh, Ephesus was kind of the Hogwarts of the Roman Empire. You know, the place where if you want to really be good at magic, this is the place that you go to. And so there was a lot of demonic activity and spiritual warfare going on in Ephesus. And into that context comes this guy named Paul. And look what happens here in verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. You see, what you have here is Paul coming into this territory that has a lot of demonic activity, and he, he doesn't come in casting things out, but he comes in bringing a message of hope. And he boldly or confrontationally confronts what's going on in Ephesus. And so in the midst of what he's doing, he's holding nothing back in his boldness. He's basically saying, here is who Jesus is, and here is what these other gods that you have around you, and Jesus is. He is so much better, so much grander, so much greater. And he's not afraid that the people might say, well, you know, you're crazy, like they said at Athens, you're a babbler. Um, But he's really boldly confronting what's going on. In the midst of this, he's arguing with them or he's proclaiming in a reasonable manner. So he's not just boldly getting up and yelling at them and saying, Jesus is better. Don't you understand that? But he's saying here, Jesus is better. And then someone might raise a hand and they might ask a question like, well, this resurrection thing, what do you mean about this? It doesn't make sense to us. I mean, to us, we see the body is bad and you're telling us that one day our spirit and our body is going to be reunited. That doesn't make sense to us. And so Paul would reasonably explain to them This is what that means. And so for three months, this is going on. And it gets to a point where they finally say, you know what? This is kind of goofy. We don't believe you. Some did, but some didn't. But there was enough of them that didn't believe that it got to a point where Paul had to say, you know what? I'm just going to leave the synagogue. Verse 9, it says this. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. In other words, they were saying all these bad things about Paul. They were saying all these bad things about Jesus. They were saying all of these bad things about Christianity because their hearts had become hardened. Well, what does Paul do? Paul goes somewhere else. As it goes on here, it says, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, here's what's really neat about this. Two things. 
First of all, when you see here the lecture hall of Tyrannus, what it means is that there is a certain time of day when Paul would go to this lecture hall and he would disciple the believers. It's, it's kind of like um, when I was reading the commentaries, every commentary had this, Paul went to this lecture hall from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. because that's when the people in Ephesus had their siesta. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be a great work day? Like you get there at 9, you end at 11, you take a five-hour siesta, and you come back and work to 5. That's kind of a cool work day. But the idea here is this. When I'm reading that, I'm thinking, these guys are just showing off their knowledge. I mean, I honestly don't care that Paul spoke from 11 until 4 in this lecture hall. So what? It adds nothing to me. And then I realized that what these people were doing was saying no to their siesta and actually learning how to follow Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice a very important part of their day in order to learn how to follow Jesus more closely. And that to me is pretty impressive because we're not talking about the leaders of the church that Paul was developing, but we're talking about the disciples in the church. Where I think sometimes for us to sacrifice some of those major portions of our day is really hard because our thinking is looking at ourselves. I'm tired this, I'm tired that, I'm frustrated this. And yet these people, with all their daily cares, were willing to say, I will take this huge time of day and I will learn about Jesus. And what was the fruit of that? Look what happens. Verse 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In other words, what Paul was doing, which is a great mission strategy, he was teaching them about Jesus and how to follow Jesus, and then he would send them out so that all over Asia, even though Paul never left, people were hearing about Christ. And that's really important for us because you're not sitting here today just to be encouraged or blessed by yourself, but with the hope that you're being discipled in such a way that we can say all over the Chicagoland area, the name of Christ is being preached, not because our pastors are going to your workplace, not because our pastors are going to your neighborhood, but because you're going where you already are and you're telling people about Jesus. And that to me was pretty cool, but it gets better. Verse 11, verse 11 reads, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. In other words, miracles that were clearly divine, not some trick or hoaxer kind of thing where he could say hocus pocus, dominocus, kaboom, and something would be really neat. Not one of those things that you set up where you invite people to come up and you hit them in the head and they fall over and they go, wow, it's a healing, it's wonderful. But actually, really neat, interesting, divine manifestations of God's grace through miracles. How so? Look, it was so extraordinary that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, being Paul, were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be kind of neat? I mean, think about it. The handkerchief that Paul would use to wipe the sweat of his brow off while he's making a tent, the apron that he's wearing in order to keep his clothes from getting really dirty are things that people were able to take and take somewhere else and place them on somebody and they would get healed, which is the biblical basis of why we're going to do that today. No, I'm just kidding to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, yeah, really? You're fired. Okay. This is absolutely extraordinary how that happens. And, and that's exactly what God was doing. But here's the thing of why God was doing it then in Ephesus. It's because in the midst of this stronghold of demonic activity, 
the people would need something that would shake them or jar them or wake them up to see that this Jesus is not just about words and deeds, but also about power. So what you have here is God doing something that goes beyond the normal. The extraordinary is the term that's used here because he wants the Ephesians to see that he really, he really is God. And that to see that it's not just the proclamation which Paul did, but which is really cool because the basis of these miracles is the preaching of the word of God. So that the miracles themselves were a confirmation that what Paul says is really true. So the message of Jesus is powerful. And so when he stood before the masses and preached his message, that was key. That was crucial. The word revealed and his miracles were a confirmation of who he was. And so that when Jesus rose from the dead, the greatest miracle of all, what it was saying is that Jesus truly is the son of God. So the issue is not having the miracles that was important. It's the proclamation of the word to see who God was and the miracles would ultimately confirm that. But here's the extraordinary miracles that are going on. And now look what happens. They're so neat that other people are taking notice of it. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now back in those days, there were Jewish exorcists, which would be people who cast out demons. And they would have had a fruitful ministry until the coming of Christ and the Messiah when that power source got turned off on them. But these guys were still going around, and I'm not really sure how orthodox or how firm they were in their faith because they sound more like hucksters. But it goes on. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out, kind of like an incantation. Now, we don't do incantations today, right? Except when we pray. Like we always say, in Jesus' name, right? Because we say, in Jesus' name, because that's the way you end a prayer. And if we say it that way, then really, that's really God's going to answer that prayer because you said, in Jesus' name. In fact, I remember when I first came to Harvest, I didn't say that at the end of my prayer. And uh, a few people came up to Pastor David and said, how come he doesn't finish with, in Jesus' name? Because we see it as an incantation, thinking that if I say just those words in Jesus' name, the answer will come. You don't ever have to say in Jesus' name because God looks, like Pastor Benson said, at your heart. I don't remember Superman ever looking into your heart, but I know that Jesus looks into your heart. And he's right. Didn't he say that? Superman looks into your heart. See, I'm just correcting you. But God looks at your heart, so you don't have to say in Jesus' name, because if he sees that you're not praying a prayer that Jesus would pray, and that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to pray a prayer that he would pray, then it doesn't matter if you say in Jesus' name. You can say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but if your heart is not in it with what God wants, then it doesn't make a difference, and it just becomes an incantation. So you have these Jewish guys running around saying, in the name of Jesus, get out! Because their thinking is, if we cast out demons, then people are going to give us money, and this is all good for us. So then Luke gives us a specific example in verse 14. He says, the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And just think this, I wonder what his voice was like when he said that. I wonder if he said it in a normal voice or this kind of like, oh, I know, Jesus, you know, that kind of weird, creepy, freaky voice. And I wonder, I mean, if the seven sons of Sceva were like, whoa, freaking out, man, because where'd that voice come from? 
Because, you know, usually in our, our Hollywood style, we don't really think that, you know, demons speak in normal voices. They have to have some freaky voice. Anyway, verse 16. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I mean, I can't even picture what this scene looked like. But it, just imagine this guy throwing these guys all over the place, throwing them up against the wall on the tables. And I don't know if he did that Siler thing where he went, bam, and just totally beat on these guys. And he, and he beat on them because here's, here's one of the reasons why. If these guys were able to say in the name of Jesus and then cast out demons, then the name of Jesus would be discredited. Why? Because these guys don't really believe in Jesus. And so if they really don't believe in Jesus and they are able to use his name as an incantation, what it means is that anyone can use Jesus' name. And if anyone can use Jesus' name, what's the purpose of following him? If I can just use his name and get all the benefits. And so God pulls the plug and these guys get such a beating. And here's the great result in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized or grasped with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. In other words, these people who were so used to demonic activity and seeing demons cast out of people and all these incantations and all these guys making money off of this finally realized that, wow, this Jesus really means something because you can't use his name to cast out demons. In fact, the only one who's fruitful and successful in casting out demons in the name of Jesus is Paul. So this miracles... These miracles, these extraordinary miracles are continuing to confirm not who Paul is, but who Paul is talking about, which is really important because I just want you to go back to verse 11 just for a minute here. It says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's not Paul who has power. But let me finish with a couple things because here's a great result. So you have this, these specialists who now face the reality of who Jesus is, and after getting a beating, look what happens. The people have this great fear, and in verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. In other words, before they were just kind of like, yeah, we're following Jesus, this is really good stuff. But after seeing this power encounter, they realize this really is serious business. In verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I mean, the bottom line is, Paul came to Ephesus, a stronghold of demonic warfare. He preached the word. It was confirmed by God doing extraordinary miracles through him, and people repented. That's how you know that God was actually at work. You saw a large amount of repentance. You didn't say people going, wow, that's really cool. That's really neat. I wish I could do that. And that was the end of it. But it's, wow, God exists and he's got some really mad power and will follow him in that manner. Now, I go through all of that because I wanted to get the story out of the way because I think there are some lessons here that we have to understand as we bring it forth to us today. Now, how many of you as Westerners, when you read this story, you go, man, that'd be neat. But I don't think it happens today. Anyone here like that? Just a little survey. Come on, be honest. I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest. I feel like that. When I read this, my Western mind takes over and I go, yeah, that's really neat. I would like to do it. But come on, really? When was the last time someone here saw a demon cast out of somebody? Okay, a few of us. 
But not a whole bunch of us, right? Because we don't go to these places where we see demons get cast out. I mean, where do you go? To the demon casting out store? Is there something like that on eBay? No, there's not. It's just not something that happens frequently because for some odd reason, with a Western mindset, we take spiritual warfare for granted and we really don't think that there are people who are demon-possessed and the only view that we have of demon possession are people like from the exorcist where their heads are spinning around in circles and that's what we really think is demon possession. So there's a sense in our part where we no longer actually believe that stuff exists. And even if we do and desire to have it happen, we really don't think that God would actually do something like that in our midst. And so here in, in, in like Europe or even in the United States, there's not really a lot of this happening that we see because we have turned off what we believe that God cannot do any longer. And we're told the reason God can't do it any longer is because those were things that were for the apostles because the apostles need to confirm the message of Jesus. But I want to ask you something. Does the message of Jesus still need to be confirmed by miracles today? Yes. I mean, the message by itself is good enough. It can change and does change lives. There are a lot of churches and denominations in the United States where lives are being changed and miracles other than the changed life, which is the greatest miracle of all, are not happening. But there is a place when it is used properly for miracles to actually happen. So here are some of the lessons that I I think that we need to learn. First lesson is this, in verse 9. It says, But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. Here's the idea. While more muscular Christianity leads to changed lives, this is not always the case. For instance, when I first became a follower of Christ, I always wanted to see Dennis Rodman become a Christian. Because I thought to myself, if Dennis Rodman becomes a follower of Christ, man, the whole bunch of people are going to follow Christ, right? Don't you think? I mean, that guy is, is sometimes off the deep end. And if suddenly you see him becoming a preacher of the gospel and sharing from a heart of humility and love for people and the brokenness and the weeping, you think to yourself, wow, that'd be really great. And tons of people would come to Christ. But that's not the way it always works. In this instance, people were through the confirmation of the miracles, becoming followers of Jesus. But there was also a good portion of people who were not. So the issue then is we don't need to press in for miracles, but proclaim the gospel. Do you see the difference? We proclaim the gospel, and then if God wants to do extraordinary miracles, let him do the extraordinary miracles. But don't sit there and try to go, I'm going to do this miracle and do that miracle with the hopes that people will believe, because that's not the way it works. And even Jesus struggled with that in the sense that with, after all the miracles that he had done and that people had seen, they still crucified him. Does that make sense? That's a big lesson. God can and does do miracles today. He does them all over the world and not necessarily here because of our unbelief. In Tuba City, for instance, a couple years ago, Pastor Dave was part of a miracle. He was praying for this one lady and she was telling him how she had these headaches and he just started praying for her. And if I understand the story correctly, he just started, you know, that kind of Korean praying where you start beating on the lady's back. And um, I wasn't there. So this is secondhand. But, uh, and then suddenly she just started bleeding like crazy. And, uh, 
not on the back of her head, but out of her nose, just so that you're not thinking that like he actually beat her and that we're going to have a lawsuit in a couple of years. But she started bleeding like crazy, and it was then after he had prayed for her and cast something out that she was healed. The headaches were gone, and they've been gone for years. Those things happen. They happen in our midst if we let God do it. But what changed the woman wasn't just the fact that a miracle happened, but a confirmation of the things that he had been telling her about Jesus all along. Now, there's another lesson here. Verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Lesson number two is that when God does miracles, God does miracles, not us. I mean, I think that's what I struggle with because I know one of the reasons why I would like to do miracles is so that people could say, wow, God really used you. But what I'm hearing is you're really godly. Make sense? Because I want to be recognized as someone who really does super neat things. So that people can say, wow, he really has a connection with God. So the person I'm going to go to is him because he really has a connection with God. But it's not about me. It's about God. See, God is the one who does the miracles. And yet, in a sense, he gives us the authority to do those things just like an ambassador. You know, when President Obama sends ambassadors overseas, what they do is they represent him. They represent the United States, the policies of the administration, so that when people are dealing with an ambassador, that ambassador has the authority to act on the wishes of the president as he's there. In the same way, Jesus calls us to be his ambassadors, but it's not our power that we use. It's God's power. And so when we sing, we don't say, show your power through me, but it's show your power. And we need to understand it is God who does those things because the danger is not only here with the sons of Sceva, but also earlier in Acts chapter 9, where some of these people see these miracles happen and suddenly they want to get in on the good stuff. And we begin to focus on the miracles and how wonderful the miracles are and we forget the message because so much is put on the miracles that the message gets lost, which then ultimately makes the miracles meaningless. Because it's about the power of God after the proclamation of God has been made so that when people know that a miracle has happened, they know who this God is and why he's doing it. Because the miracles of Jesus were ultimately for a purpose. You look in the Gospel of John, the seven miracles that he did were a purpose to show that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so when we're doing miracles, it's not because we want to make a show of God, but because we want to show God to actually be the Son of God, the Messiah who came and died for our sins. Does that make sense? That's an important lesson. It's not about our power at all. Third lesson here that I have also in verse 11 and a continuation of the second one is that we need to understand that miracles are a confirmation of the word of God. In a sense, they're the icing and not the cake. They're not the main show. In a sense, they're they're dessert. When you look at someone like Paul, the hope is that you do not see Paul and elevate him to a place that he doesn't need to be in, but you actually see God. Paul's ministry, if you look at Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 12, and Galatians 3, talk about the many miracles that were manifest through his ministry. Now, I was thinking about how do you make this part of of reality here? And I'm going to confess, in some ways I'm a little nervous because it would be really cool to say, I want to prove to you that God is God, so let's have a healing service right now. And uh, that would scare me because if no one ever got healed, then I would be disappointed. 
I don't know how many of you, if you ever go to a hospital and you pray for people and your hope is that they would instantly get healed and they don't, and I walk away and I feel a little bit disappointed. Not in God, but in me, because I'm not questioning what God can do, but I start thinking about myself. And what I'm not also encouraging is us for all to now go out there and everyone that we see to pray for them to cast out demons and to see them get healed. Because I think, in a sense, there is truth that Paul was a gifted apostle to do these things. But I think it also is that Jesus has given us authority to heal and to cast out demons when we come across them. But how does this fit into where we're at? And I think the biggest thing that I walk away with perhaps for us is, if you look at verse 15, when the evil spirit looks at the sons of Sceva, he says, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? It frightens me to think that what he's saying is, You guys are unknowns. And I wonder, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of Satan, how many of us are actually unknowns? Here's what I mean. If we were starting to do stuff and do ministry, God would say, I don't know you. That's why power is not being exhibited. And while we're trying to exhibit this power, Satan says, I don't know who you are either. Because I think many of us, and our American Christianity and our way of following Jesus have become non-participants. Here's what I mean. God does not honor our obedience and Satan isn't afraid of us because all we do is come to church and we sit and we listen and then we go on our ways. And so in the spiritual realm, the two most powerful beings, one of them being ultimately super powerful and one having some power, look at us and go, I have no idea who you are let alone what you're doing. And that scares me to think that many of us who are like that sit here Sunday after Sunday and really don't meet God in a way that God says, I know you. And what scares me is sometimes as pastors, we encourage you and say, you know, God loves you. He accepts you the way you are, which is all true. But then we become comfortable in that And we become unknown in his eyes, in a sense, because we are not hungering and desiring and and seeking after him. And so we become relative, just religious people who come for our Sunday incantations and we praise God and we raise our hands and we say in Jesus name and feel that's good enough. And God says, it's not. I have no idea who you are. I mean, the sons of Sceva could have been, in a sense, worshipers of God beforehand, but not having met Jesus with that change and that transition, now they are not. But in the same way, what really scares me is, and I look at myself sometimes, is Satan looks at me and he goes, I don't have to do anything. That dude's so messed up, I'll just let him mess up his own life. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out there and do things where you're going to have demonic possession all around you and have things flying around your house because you're that kind of person. But what I'm saying is, if Satan looks at you and says, you know what, I don't even have anyone to tempt you in any way, shape, or form because you are so religious, you are so compromised, I can just leave you alone and let you go. And that scares me. To think that even Satan, who should hate our guts, really says it doesn't matter what I do with this person because they are such a non-participant. They are such a non-seeker after God that they're irrelevant. It's kind of like being the 12th man on a basketball team that never plays. The 53rd guy on a football team that never plays. It's you're just irrelevant. You're there. You're wearing a uniform. Everybody goes, wow, you're neat. You look great. But what do you do? And you say, nothing. Nothing. Sit on the bench. 
I got a great view. But in terms of winning the game, I don't do anything. Wouldn't that be disappointing to get to heaven and God says, man, thanks for being on the team. And you're like, uh, don't I get a trophy? You didn't do anything. That would be frightening. So what is it that I think God would be telling us today? It's this. There, there are three ways I think that God's reality is shown in our world. The first one is changed lives. Now, mind you, a lot of people have changed lives. But I think the biggest way in which someone says, this is what you were, and now I see who you are. How did you get there? And when you explain to them, it is Jesus who took me to this place, that brings a reality to our faith. The second way is answered prayer. When God answers things that are really outrageous that nobody else could see as a coincidence, that is a sense in which God says, I am real. And finally, ultimately, the third way is through these miracles. Miracles taking place in our lives. Here's what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you to trust God for who he is. Let me work this way backwards. And to be asking God to allow you to be a part in his ministry of bringing the miraculous to our world. It happens. You know, I know that when you think of the miraculous, you think of guys like, um, uh, sorry, I won't say his name, but the guy with the funny hair on TV who actually has you send in $15 for a handkerchief that he is blessed so that you can heal people. That's what we think of. I don't want us to be like that. But I want us to be like people who are following Jesus fully, believing in him for who he really is and what he can do. And so why not begin to say, God, begin to do miracles in my life or use me to be a part of miracles in other people's lives. And allow that to happen through prayer so that when people see changed lives through the proclamation of the word of God, the world will understand that you really truly are God. And what that does is says, God, I want to participate in this battle that I'm actually a part of. And rather than being in the rest and recreation area, I want to be on the front lines. And I want to say, God, I really want to be serious about this. But getting there is not about us, but it's about God's work in us. Because if you look at the seven sons of Sceva, they might have been very religious people, but without power, they took a beating. And I'm not encouraging you to go outside and start casting out things without actually walking with Christ. Why? Because our authority and our power is not ours, but it comes from him. And again, I'm not trying to get rid of all the doctors here and put you out of business. But what I am saying, there are things that God wants to do, but doesn't do because we simply do not believe. We're afraid of being rejected. Paul was not afraid of being rejected. You can reject me. It doesn't make a difference because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. So reject me all day long, but please don't reject Jesus. And that's why he could proclaim the word boldly. And that's why God could use him in the miraculous because it was God saying, this man walks with me so that even demons say, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. So when we walk out of here today, my hope is that we just don't walk out of here and say, yeah, I struggle with that. But really, God, I want to hunger and thirst and seek after you so that when in. When push comes to shove and the miraculous needs to happen or a demon needs to be dealt with, that I would 
be able to be used by you to express your authority as power over this world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't know how many of us, but at least some of us, look at a passage like this and express large amounts of doubt, a lack of faith, not in who you are and not in what you can do. But for some odd reason, what we believe really doesn't happen in our world, but does all over the world, except here. Forgive us for our unbelief. But Father, keep us wise and humble. Not to go around spraying the world with a shotgun of miracles or a profession of miracles without your power. Father, we want to walk in your authority. And so we ask, stir in us that desire for more of you so that we know you and we know your authority and can walk in that and be your instruments to bring healing to our world. Father, in the end, we confess that we don't want to be non-participants because of our inactivity. Stir in us that desire to be actively involved in following you. Sensitive to your spirit. Trusting you to speak to us. To speak in us. To speak through us. That what we see is not so prevalent today. Becomes a vibrant part of our lives. In Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.